Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, this morning, I hope that you'll keep your Bibles open with me there to Deuteronomy. We're actually going to be all over the Scriptures this morning, actually through the whole of the Scriptures. Uh, But I want to begin by reminding us of something that some of you may not have even been there for, but uh, back a a few uh, months ago, actually, we had our partner vision night, and I shared a vision for maturity as a church. Like, not something that will be next week, not something that we're yet, not something that will be next year, but a vision for maturity, that we would grow up together in Christ as a people together, as a church. I don't want CP Coast to be stunted in maturity. As we grow in number and as we plant new congregations in Brevard County, I don't want us to be a first-generation church over and over and over again for decades to come. Uh, My vision for maturity is that uh, of a 50-year-old church who has been faithful to seek maturity as a church together that whole 50 years, and we're only, well, 11 years in now. A church that over the course of 50 years has not only grown in number, has not only grown in planting of churches, but has grown in wisdom and understanding together, okay? A first-generation church, I think that uh, it's easy to fall into, being a first-generation church sort of over and over again only adds to their number, but does not mature as a body together, so that as those who are added to their number are added to a number that is itself maturing, so they might mature along with the church. Last week, we finished our sermon series through the history of redemption, a 17-week series through the whole of the scriptures accompanied with the Bible readings at BibleTogether.com that are still up there if you want to maybe finish that up together. But I don't want us to just move on. That's why we're taking an extra week. I don't want us to add sort of another sermon series to the list of things that this congregation has done together and then start up a new one as if this was the first thing that we've ever done as a church together. But rather, take a moment to say, how would the Lord mature us? What ought we be? What ought we know? How ought we walk? What ought we believe together as a church, having spent 17 weeks together in the Scriptures in this way? Because the vision is for maturity. It's what the Lord holds out for His people, that we would grow up together. That as a result of our time in the history of redemption, we might have genuine spiritual growth as a body, as a a church. So this morning, we'll spend one last message. This morning, we're going to actually go back, and we're going to recount the whole story, 17 weeks worth of the story together. I have three purposes for the message, and we'd better get to it, right? That first of all, we would celebrate and remember again. 
So that means this is not a sermon for you to passively sit and listen to, but for you to lean forward and actually actively engage in. We have not stopped our worship service to begin a speech, but that you would celebrate the Lord as we walk through the history of his great grace upon his people. Secondly, I intend, and I think it, I just can't imagine that this wouldn't be true, that we would be shocked by how little of the story we actually know by heart. It's one of the intentions, is to go back and, and observe that we don't know. And then third, finally, having remembered the story together, we would ask the question, what does this mean for us? If you're new, or perhaps you joined us halfway through this series, I hope you are thrilled in the retelling. I hope that you see the glory and goodness of our God and that we can simply enjoy him together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do this in our midst, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would be present to give us your word and apply it to our hearts and cause that that first beautiful fruit of faith to grow up, which is worship. We glory in your name and glory in your grace, glory in what is your story that you have called us up into. Lord, would you help us to see. Would you convict us? Let us not just receive, but that we would engage and be convicted of our sin, be convicted of our failure of diligence, failure to take your word at its word as though it meant what it says. Lord, would you do a work in the whole of the church to knit us together, not just as a bunch of individually convicted souls, but as a church that are growing up by your word and spirit together. Thank you. Would you do all of this by your good news, the gospel of your grace, in the midst of your church this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the history of redemption. I would ask that you would open your Bible. You're like, I've already got it open. Well, let's go to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back to that first sermon back 17 weeks ago. And, and I would ask you to go back. We're only going to be in each passage for about a minute, minute and a half, tops two minutes, or else we're not going to get this done, okay? But I would ask, go and turn there so that you would remember not only with your ears, but also with your eyes and with your hands. Let's work our way through the Bible together. That each passage for just a brief moment would give us a look and feel of the scriptures together. Genesis 1, 1 begins this way. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The scriptures break open with this clarity. The story is about God. The fact that the Lord has given the word to us means that we can actually know that God. The story is about God who was in the beginning and that God spoke that we, like I wasn't there. I mean, you were there. Some of you are old enough to have been there, but we don't have a record of, of exactly what happened on our own, do we? But we can actually know because the God who was there in the beginning spoke. And we can know what happened, and we can know him who did it. The story is about God, and you can know God. And right at the beginning, one of the most important things we can see and remember is that God alone is God. Or, as our scripture reading for Deuteronomy that we read this morning, we'll come back to it right at the end of our time this morning. As our scripture reading this morning said, the Lord 
our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone is the God. This is who we're dealing with. Now, that's Genesis 1. Go and turn over in your Bibles. You're going to go over to Genesis 45 and make our way all the way to the end of this incredible book. Genesis is one of my favorite books to read, period. It's action-packed and full, and I learn something every single time. And here we are with Joseph in Genesis 45, the story of his attempted murder, right? His suffering, his rise to power in Egypt, and his rescue of his family is a story all the way through in Joseph's life of God's providence. Well, make no mistake, Genesis 1 was about that too, wasn't it? It was God's providence. His, his, literally, the word providence is in reference to God's sovereign provision. What did he provide in the beginning? Being. Prior to Genesis 1, there was nothing. There was nothing that is but God. And God, in his sovereign provision, made so that there was something where there was nothing. And Genesis 45 is just a continuation of God's provision, in this case, in the life of Joseph, for the sake of a whole family, a family that we begin to meet back in Genesis 12 with, uh, with God's call of Abram. The, the whole of the history of redemption is actually a story of God's perfect provision to fashion a people for himself and provide everything that we need to both know him, God's provision, is so that we might know him and so that we might enter into the redemption that he has provided. So here, God is bringing his people to Egypt, and he's providing for them. In Egypt, they multiply, and then they suffer. And the Lord rescues them up out of that land and brings them into a land of promise. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 3. You can turn just a few pages over to that one, and we see Moses and the burning bush. Again, we're confronted by God himself. God himself reveals himself to Moses, just as God has given us account of, of what has taken place in creation. God gives Moses account of who he is. God reveals himself to Moses. Who is this God? Who is, I mean, we could have being, and we could have a creator, and being could know nothing of the creator. But that's not what God did. God spoke. Who is this God that stoops to reveal himself to his creation? Who is this God that not only stoops to reveal himself, but also stoops to redeem? Who is he? Well, he's both holy and he's near. He is the great one, the creator of all things, the holy God. And he is the one who is stooped to, to reveal himself to this man, Moses. And we see in that encounter that he is the Lord, or his divine name, the I Am. This is who he is. He reveals himself to Moses in this way. And back when we were in that passage, we saw that that I Am, he who saves, is actually Jesus. That's the meaning of the name Jesus. The Lord saves. This God who revealed himself to Moses is the God who rescues. And we see this pattern developing already of God's provision, specifically, not only of life, not only of being, not only of preservation, but of redemption. Jesus, who is the final revelation of rescue. That's where we're going. So let's go over to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16. Ooh, now there's a jump. We're skipping books at this point, all right? Leviticus 16, we turn to the Day of Atonement. 
We're presented with two contrasting instructions in Leviticus 16. We're presented with do not come into the holy place. God is very clear. We have a tabernacle. We have a gathering that's gonna take place in this holy place. But don't come into the holy of holies. The Lord is holy and we are not. Not even the high priest is holy. And then it says, just a few verses later, it says, in this way, Aaron shall come. Wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to come. I thought you were very clear about that. Yet the Lord makes a provision for a representative, one representative of the people, a mediator, to come before the Lord on their behalf. He tells them, you shall not come, but Aaron shall come, and he shall come in this way. Aaron is not just casually invited, come as you are. No, the Lord makes instruction how Aaron can survive encountering the holy God. It's by the mediator coming before the Lord through a sacrifice, not just anyway, not just come as you are, but through sacrifice, the shedding of blood that not only is Aaron, but the people are cleansed of their sin. And it says at the end of that passage, it says, this shall be a statute forever. Everything else that plays out in the the whole scope of the history of redemption has the day of atonement as the necessary grounds. The day of atonement sort of sets the parameters, gives us an understanding of all, all the pieces that need to come together in order for the people to come before the Lord, not condemned, but rather cleansed of their Sin, without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All the rest of the story, it's further images of atonement. It's further revelation of our need for atonement. It's, it's news about how God is going to bring about the redemption by means of atonement. And it's an explanation of God's justice upon those who remain apart from him due to unbelief. And in the end, we find that Jesus himself, God made flesh, is both our mediator and our atoning sacrifice. Friends, when we take communion together, this is the broken body and the shed blood. The the parameters are set for us to remember. What we are remembering in that moment is how Jesus, in his own flesh, is that day of atonement. He is the means by which We both come before God and are cleansed. Then we turn over to Deuteronomy 30. Now we're moving. God's covenant. His his covenant, and this you you, you saw this. After we came to, to, to Deuteronomy 30, we repeated this phrase over and over again over the remaining of the 17 weeks. God's covenant of blessing, of curse, and return. God's blessing, his curse, return, or blessing, curse, and redemption. Deuteronomy 30 opens in this way. When all these things come upon you. Well, what are all these things? Well, God gave the law in, uh, in Deuteronomy, and he's revealed his perfect way to his people. And then in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, like just the verses just before Deuteronomy 30, God promises blessing for obedience, but he also promises curse for disobedience. So when Deuteronomy 30 opens with the the words, when all these things come upon you, that's not good news. (laughs) He's just talking about curses for disobedience, saying you're going to disobey. Like, yeah, you you could have had the blessings. They're real. It was real, actual promise, but you're not going to. (laughs) 
And so the promise is also true of curse for disobedience. And when all these things come upon you, he says. Moses explains that the people, uh, explains that, that to the people. It isn't that we don't know what to do. We do know. It isn't that the command is too hard for us to do. We could do it. It's that we don't love what is good. We don't want to. We desire other things. And this is why we need redeeming grace. It's true. We need to be forgiven of sin because it's actually, like, it's, it's not sin that like I just didn't pull it off this time. It's sin that I didn't want to pull it off this time. That we need not only redeeming grace, we also need transforming power. This is why it is true grace and our only hope for redemption that the Lord has not only revealed blessing and curse, that would be law alone, but he's also revealed a promise of redemption. And so we move forward to to a theme that runs throughout the remainder of the scriptures of this redemption, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Moving on to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we get into the history books and we see how sorrow moves to song. In 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we have a story of reversals. We have a a, a barren woman who gives birth to Samuel. We have King Saul, the man of great statue and pride. Stature and pride is, is actually destroyed. And we have David that in his humility is delivered. A story of reversals. God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud. That pattern is set for us in First and Second Samuel. What is humility? Well, isn't humility to seek the glory of God alone, to come under the banner of his glory? What's pride? Well, pride is to oppose the way of the Lord and to build a kingdom for ourselves apart from God. It's just like Adam in the beginning. On my own, I can live, Adam is shaking his fist at God, apart from your promise, apart from your instruction, apart from your way. This is pride. And so we asked when we came to 1 Samuel, whose kingdom do you seek? Like you. Whose kingdom do you seek? First and 2 Samuel make it clear. You may grow mighty in the world. You may even be successful in building your little kingdom, but you will be opposed by the Lord Almighty. He has not abdicated his throne. There is no other king beside him. Those who seek the Lord in in their weakness and repent of their sin come under the redemption promise of a covenant hope. The humble who confess that we have run after other things and place themselves underneath of the banner of the hope that is in their God. These are the ones who are brought into his kingdom. As we look closer at the story of 1 Samuel, we see that we have a king problem. And if you go over to 1 Samuel 16, at this point, you might be starting to drop off and say, I don't really want to flip. Flip, open your Bible. Let's let's work our way through with our hands. And let's get to 1 Samuel 16. And, And there you see, we have a king problem. Church, Adam, he was supposed to be reigning like a king. But he's a failed king. God made Adam and Eve to rule over the land he made. And and Adam and Eve together, they reject the way of the Lord in rebellion. All of humanity is plunged into sin and death at the fall. We have a king problem. And then Saul, right? Saul is actually a failed king. 
Repeatedly, he fails to conform to the clear instructions of the Lord, and he decides to do things his own own way. On my own, Saul. On my own, I can live. On my own, I can reign. On my own, I can be king. But then even good King David, wise King Solomon, they would die. And they would hand their kingdom to a divided kingdom and the line of failed kings. We have a king problem, people. In the, God, in the garden, we rejected the Lord as king, and no other king has succeeded in taking his place. And friends, we're waiting. You know, it's not just Adam, and it's not just King David or Saul or some other king. To this day, we are looking for someone in this world of our own kingdoms to save us. The book of Chronicles, a parallel account of the history of the kings. As we turn there, in the, book of, in the books of Chronicles, we're confronted with a question. We who have a king problem, will God dwell with us? And we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Will God dwell with man? That's interesting. One of these kings, he was a wise king, but ultimately his kingdom failed. Solomon, King Solomon, he just successfully built the temple. And this is one of the wonders of the world, right? But in the, the true miracle isn't the building of this great architectural structure. The true miracle is to ask, would God actually dwell in the midst of a people? And Solomon asks that question, and the answer is pretty clear. No. <laughs> no, he won't. Like, good job building the temple and all, but, but the Lord doesn't live in a house built with hands. What on earth could contain him who made all things? And Solomon offers a transcendent view of God. The answer is, finally, there is no temple that would contain him. And yet, simultaneously, the answer is actually yes. Yes, actually, the Lord fills the temple with his glory. Like the Lord who made all things who imagined the dust particles that would collect into rock and and form this great structure. He made the whole thing. He makes his glory dwell in that tiny little temple structure. And then he draws near, not only to dwell with the people, but to give them images of redemption. The temple becomes a precursor to the final answer to the question, will God dwell with man? And the answer is not just yes. The answer is yes, Indeed, Jesus is the Word made flesh who dwells among us and will never leave us nor forsake us. The final resounding answer to the question, will God dwell with man, is Jesus Christ. We continue to move forward. We're going to go over to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18. It's actually sort of a parallel, but forward in history. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You can't skip that one. It's just too mighty of a story, right? In this great confrontation, the Lord thoroughly humiliates and defeats the false prophets along with their false gods and demonstrates that the Lord God is the true God. When the fire comes down from heaven and utterly consumes the sacrifice that Elijah put on that altar and and built there. One commentator explains this. When the fire comes down, not a fire that Elijah lit, all that he did was prepare the sacrifice, but he didn't burn it up. John Woodhouse writes, what did did this all-consuming fire from heaven do? 
It turned the beast on the altar into a burnt offering. No one offered up this offering. It was the Lord himself who turned it into a burnt offering. The Lord himself made atonement for the sins of the people. That's the nature of what the offering is. And it's what he, he turns the offering into in the burnt offering. The consuming fire makes atonement. Again, we have that image, right? The image of the day of atonement for a people who are destined to receive curse apart from redemption. Now, you remember the promise of blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. In 2 Kings, we see a people of Israel exiled. This is where the story has been going all the way from Deuteronomy chapter 30. 2 Kings chapter 17, God justifies the exile as a fulfillment of his promise. It was a promise, the curse of disobedience. And he makes an argument for exile. Here's his argument. 2 Kings 17 Verse seven, and this occurred, the exile, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. So they turned from God being their great ruler and king and feared alternative kings and idols. Though God had called the people and given himself the, his law and made provision for their flourishing, the exile is actually a fulfillment of God's promise to curse. You ever gone through the Bible like looking for God's promises? I just want to be reassured by his promises. He promised to curse for disobedience. Thank God that's not the whole of the covenant. The Lord remains not only faithful to his promise to curse, but the Lord remains a God of steadfast love and mercy, and he will remember and keep his covenant to redeem, not only to bless, not only to curse, but also to redeem a people and bring forgiveness of their sin. And this is what brings us to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, the new covenant in Jeremiah is a further revelation of God's purpose that began back in Deuteronomy 30. So we have Deuteronomy 30 leading to Jeremiah 31. The old covenant, the, the covenant of the law was a conditional covenant. Blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience, right? The new covenant promised in Jeremiah and fully revealed and accomplished in Jesus Christ and his gospel is a genuinely, truly new covenant. But God didn't abolish the old covenant. He just, ah, forget about that one. That was conditional. Let's do something different. But rather, the new covenant, it doesn't ignore the old. The covenant of grace by which the Lord secures redemption has been slowly revealed at each moment in history, even present in the terms of the old covenant. Even as the old covenant was being established, he was establishing terms so that the old covenant shows that the Lord is holy. And he didn't cease to be holy. He hasn't moved away from any of his promises. He's holy and he's righteous. So we have blessing and curse. Because the Lord doesn't set aside the conditionality of those terms to accomplish redemption, he shows himself to remain righteous and remain just, having fulfilled the terms of the old covenant through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the only one the only one fit for blessing. 
the only one to whom the curse of exile would not come. He fulfills the whole, the fullness of the old covenant in himself. Repeatedly, the gospels bear witness to this. God accomplishes the, at the same time in Christ, the conditionality of the old covenant and the unilateral promises of the new covenant. A covenant that is conditional not upon works, but upon faith. Faith in the perfect and final work of God alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilling every condition. So before we turn to the New Testament, we take one last stop in the Old Testament. We actually go to the oldest book in the scriptures. We go to Job. You're gonna have to turn back to that one a little bit before the Psalms. Job 38 and 40 and 42. In Job, God asked Job, when Job lodges his complaint, will you, Job, Will you even put me in the wrong? Like, have you found out some argument that would work against God? Job has a certain understanding of God at the beginning of Job. An understanding that is accompanied by faith. He goes before the Lord in worship and sacrifice. But it is still an incomplete understanding. In the face of the horror of evil loosed in the world, Job comes to understand that even this evil... The greatness of the evil that falls upon him is still restrained, just as the behemoth and the Leviathan are restrained. The Lord yet restrains evil. We live in a season of grace. You remember what was told to Adam. You will surely die. And yet somehow, Job's still alive. We live in a season of restrained evil. And Job comes to understand that the Lord alone is the hope of redemption. Not a continuation of a nice life, but the Lord alone is the hope of redemption. Now, when when will this final redemption finally be accomplished? When will we see it? Everything up to this point has been hints and and structures and and sort of a, a framework that says, trust me, trust me, I am the God who redeems. Faith is the call. And then we open John 1. John 1, the word, the light, and the life. Jesus is the true light that comes into the world. And so we have the the revelation of the thing itself, not the conditions, not the structures, not the covenant, but the covenant fulfilled in Christ. For all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God, the light of life. Jesus has suffered death in our place, that by grace, through faith, all who believe might be forgiven of sin and granted rebirth in life. Pause for a moment. Gospel. If you were asked the question, what is the gospel, how would you respond? It would be right and appropriate to say, I just hear this story, and everything that I'm hearing is a promise of good news. But what is the good news itself? If your answer to the question, what is the gospel, your answer is the Bible. The answer to the question, what is the gospel, what is the good news, is Jesus Christ himself and the work that he has done. Everything else is pointing to the possibility, the high likelihood, the surety, 
because it's God making all of these promises after all, that there is redemption, but redemption itself is Jesus Christ. Redemption itself is his death and his resurrection. The day of atonement isn't gospel. It's gospel promise. Jesus Christ and the day of his atoning work is gospel itself. This is the final day of atonement to which the day of atonement pointed the whole time so that we all, all who along the way didn't say there's a high likelihood, there is a great chance, but surely the Lord has promised and he's given us images and symbols along the way. We believe all of these saints by faith were redeemed on that work, on that cross. And then we came to Luke 24. Having received this gospel, we see it fulfilled throughout the gospels and we have the, Jesus opening the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now all that these two disciples on the road to Emmaus knew is that the one who they thought was the Messiah was dead. At least this is what they thought they knew. But Jesus, who is actually very much alive and actually walking with them on the road, he, he conceals his, an image of himself to them. So they don't recognize him. And he begins, very much alive, to open the scriptures to them. The very history that we just walked through, he opens to them on the road. And he helps them to make sense of the history of redemption. These disciples had Jesus. I'll tell you, this is, honestly, it's one of the reasons why we're doing this sermon today. This was the most impactful thing for me in going through the history of redemption this year. They had Jesus the God, the Redeemer, God the Son made flesh, having accomplished risen body redemption in their presence. And Jesus says, I have something even better to give you than the vision of myself. And he opens the word to them. I would suggest, as I did when we preached our way through that passage, that it remains true. That the only way to see the real Jesus isn't to catch a glimpse of him one day in the middle of Jerusalem or on a road in Emmaus. The only way to see the true Jesus is to see him according to his word. I want the true Jesus. I want to see him as he is given. And when we see him in that way, our hearts will burn as he speaks to us. Friends, that sets the stage for the burning hearts of the disciples in Acts chapter two, in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And their hearts burn as they make known the word. They didn't walk around with pictures of Jesus or drawings of Jesus. They walked around proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see God confirming that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the history of redemption is not only for Jerusalem, not only for Judea, not only even for Samaria, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, even to the ends of the earth. This is what the Holy Spirit bears witness to throughout Acts chapter 2. The history of redemption is not only that God carved, not, not that God carved off groups of people to say that those people are out, the Canaanites are out, yeah, the Edomites, those are going to be out, and the Rome, they're going to be out, and the Greeks, they're going to be. No, no, that's not it at all. 
The history of redemption is God making himself known first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That by this one gospel, this one story, by grace through faith, a story together, God gives his spirit that we may know and believe that all who have believed have truly become one body by one gospel filled with one spirit. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Never haven't been those who believe. The statement of the gospel is summarized so clearly for us in in 1 Timothy. And that's why we went there to sort of wrap up our time in the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we have a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus, who is God the Son, has become flesh and dwelt here right among us. He knew and experienced beautiful things and suffering hard things. And he did all of this for one singular purpose. The gospel's end is to save sinners, that sinners might be rescued from vain idolatrous worship to the glory of the Lord alone. And this is what we see sinner. That which you have been rescued to is to a sight of the true God. The God according to his word appears in Revelation 21. And it turns out the answer to the question, Solomon, is yes. The dwelling place of God is with man. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor the former, the former things have passed away. And this is the completion of the story. It's not redemption needed in the fall. It's not redemption promised in the covenants. It's not even just redemption secured in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is redemption enjoyed. Do You see, we're not moving toward our redemption being secure. We are moving to enjoying the beautiful fruit of our redemption. That we can be with our God. And God, first of all and greatest of all, will be with us. This is the history of redemption. Again, held out to us to remember and celebrate. Do you have any celebration this morning? What would the Lord have for us as a congregation together? I have to admit, after these last 17 weeks together, I have a ton of questions. Do you? Has there like been anything at all that you've, we've spent time with in the scripture? You're like, What? <laughs> How does that work? And, and it seems like, like Deuteronomy 30, how does that really actually fit with Deuteronomy 28 and 29? And, and new covenant? Like, did he just throw out the old covenant? Like, how does that work exactly? Let me just share with you some of mine. How did the sacrificial system work in more detail? The Day of Atonement was, was clearly centrally important, but what about the other feasts? How did those work? I mean, Passover, for instance. Jesus wasn't crucified on the Day of Atonement. He was crucified during the Feast of the Passover. 
What are the specific places in Scripture that reference the covenant of, of Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30? Maybe reading some of those and getting to know them so I could call them to mind quickly would help me to understand God's promise fulfilled in Christ. How is the new covenant both old and new? How did the prophets look back on the promises of God and look forward to the promise fulfilled? Like, can I actually even go to a single prophet that foretold those things? How does Jesus use the scriptures in his own teaching? That's a really personal one. I mean, if I'm going to teach the scriptures, I might pay attention to the guy that, like, did it really well, <laughs> you know? I have thought a lot about these questions, and, and I think that actually questions are one of the most important tools for the reading of Scripture. You see, if we go to the Word with a question, and not just with a duty to read, we're like those who ask, seek, and knock. And what does the Lord himself say? He's going to open it to us, and he will answer us, and we can enter into what he has to reveal Surely the Lord will be faithful to answer if we come to him with a question. It took just a few moments for me to come up with some of those questions, and I have so many more, a lot are even in my notes during the course of our time together. What are your questions? What have you come up with? Don't keep them private. Share them with your household. Share them with your community group. Call me up. Share them with me. Maybe we should spend time as a congregation in some of these questions. I would encourage you to just a couple things before we close. First of all, one tool that is at your disposal, besides questions, is actually all 17 of the sermons are available to you. Like, go back and listen your way through. Make that your podcast for a couple months. The sermon series is now a resource for the church's maturity. Not something we did once, but something that we're using to grow up together. But before we close, I want to go back. Deuteronomy 6. We didn't just read it. We need to pay attention to it. Deuteronomy 6. Why did I choose this as our scripture reading this morning? Why, why did God instruct his people to literally bind commandments to their hand? Listen to what it says. Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to begin actually in verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Well, how does that happen? They get something on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's weird. <laughs> Come on. That's weird. That's different. Like imagine having something like right here all the time, walking around. Imagine just always talking about Bible stuff and maybe reading it and sharing with each other as you're driving to school in the morning. I guess weird. I feel like all you ever do is talk about Jesus. <laughs> and that's what he's saying to do. I would suggest it's weird because we're weird. We ought to be. We ought to be more different than we already are. And I would also suggest why did God call them to literally bind commandments to their hand? And the image quickly came to my mind, watching a lot of Packers these days, right? And I'm, I'm thinking of that, that quarterback playbook on the wrist, right? What, what does he need? He doesn't just walk around with a playbook on his heart, right? No, he spent all week working on it, but it's not enough to just do your devotions in the morning. You, you need the playbook right there, and he opens it up and says, Coach, 
What are we doing next? There isn't a moment that we're not still in the game. Not just in the morning, but all day long. On the road and when we return from home. There is a, here's what I'm saying. There's a physicality to it. Not just a spirituality, which is real. But a physicality to our spirituality. Spirituality is near, it's real, and it's manifest in our actual physical lives. So here what I would, what I would suggest, just one thing. I mean, there's lots of, I asked you, remember, I asked you first, before I give a suggestion, I asked two weeks ago, what is something that God would have for us as a congregation? If you have an answer to that question, give me a call. Let's talk. Let's grab coffee and let's talk about what does God have for us. But one of the things that I think that God has for us is this, like the Bible, like the actual one. I hope you own one. If you don't, give me a call. I'll buy you one. I'll give you one of mine. And I would suggest that our lives will keep on moving the way the world moves in our lives unless they are interrupted. And what I read in Deuteronomy 6 is an interrupted life. See, they have a way that they would go unless they had a thing that was in the way, like a thing, like an actual physical book thing. I have something that's in my way, and it interrupts my life all the time, everywhere I go. I don't even carry it in my pocket anymore. I carry it in my hand. And the thought that I had was, what if I took this, which is showing me the timer, it says we're almost done, and I said, timer, go in here for just a second, like just for a minute or two. You stay here, and you go here, like physically, in my left hand. And wherever I would be, practically, when I would take whatever's in my left hand and open it up and, and check the news, check the email, update Instagram, do whatever I might do in that moment, I would say, well, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? And all the places where I normally sit in a passenger seat on the way to the grocery store, maybe for you to school in the morning, instead of flipping through the thing that's normally in your hand, flip through the thing that's in your hand now. And when you're waiting at a coffee shop for someone to show up, they show up and they'll find this thing in front of you instead, and you can get work done. That's weird. That's weird. God's command interrupts normal with something else. When you finish your math assignment and you don't want to start working on history yet and you think, I want to reward myself for a few moments of break. Well, Psalm 1 isn't very long. And why not? Why not? I would challenge you. You think about what that looks like. And even just very, very practically, I've had this pit minion, P-I-T-T-M-I-N-I-O-N. Picked it up. It's not a cheap Bible, but I've gotten my use out of it. And along the way, I've picked up a, a journal. And I, there have been times in my life where I've been faithful to actually have this in my hand every single actual place I ever go. Like when I go out to swim, when I go out to, to go for a, a run, when I go to a coffee shop, when I'm sitting at my dinner table, I literally would have it here or I would have it in my left hand and then I would open it up. And when I, someone came in the room and I'd say, yeah, I was just reading something. That's weird. I challenge you. Will you consider it? And maybe come up with some other ways that God would have us 
physically have his word with us because it's beautiful to celebrate. We don't know it. And it's the only means by which we can know our Redeemer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great grace to us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the history of redemption, even the parts that I can't even remember right now. I thank you for your grace to me and my own life to interrupt me a few particular times to say, Jeremiah, put that, put that book in your hand. Be with the people with that book. Be with your friends. Be with your family with that story. Thank you, God. I pray that today would be an interruption for everybody here, including myself, to say, why don't you, don't you pick that up again and put that phone in your pocket? Thank you, Lord, for interrupting us with something transcendently awe you and miraculously great redemption. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is revealed. Amen.